0: Good morning. Oh, we can do better than that. Good morning. Good morning. I know you're Presbyterians, but there we go. All right. Um, let me open us this morning with a prayer of illumination from Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for blessings this morning we ask that we would not be merely hearers of the word, but doers also. Would we not come merely for information, more knowledge to fill our minds, but would we, be, would we be those who actively seek to put into practice what we discover in your word? Would you give us the blessing of a blameless way? Would you take away our heart of sin and give us a heart that loves righteousness. Would you take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh? We ask, O Lord, that we would love your law because it reveals your character to us. It is in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you turn in your copy of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 1? We're going to be considering this morning verses 1 through 7. Please give careful heed to the word of the Lord. Proverbs 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of his word this morning. Parents love to play games with their children. For some of you, that may be Monopoly, or Hearts, or Backgammon, or Chess, but in our family, we have a game, a game that we play with our children, and that game is called Put Your Shoes On, It's Time to Go, (laughs) which then immediately leads to the question, where are we going? To which the proper response in this game is, why don't you guess? which, if I had to wager, I'm thinking is absolutely the highlight of my children's existence. Uh, In fact, this is probably bad parenting, but we went to Disneyland and did not tell them that we were going. They did not know we were going until they saw the sign. So, uh, you know, it's a game. We play it. But there's a question And the question is, where are we going? This is a vital question for each one of us. Where are we going? What destination do we have in mind? And once we've determined the destination, then we can determine the route. Without the goal being clearly fixed in our minds, clearly set, we cannot find the best path to achieve that goal. Uh, If you don't have the end clearly in mind, then you cannot use the appropriate means to accomplish it. Well, the same thing goes with wisdom. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, wisdom is the art of choosing well. It's having the right and best destination in mind and then chasing that goal carefully and well. Let me say this. Again, wisdom is the art of choosing well. It's having the right and best destination in mind, and then chasing that goal carefully and well. We find in Scripture a collection of books that are referred to as wisdom literature. There are, in fact, four books in the Old Testament that fit into this category, and one In the New, and they are Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs, and the book of James. In short, Proverbs lays out for us the ordinary life of wisdom with God at its center. It is scattered. It is messy. It is jumbled. It is a a confusing bouncing of subject to subject from idea to idea. And brothers and sisters, that's actually the point. If you've read through the book of Proverbs, you know that it's hard to make head or tails of why is this proverb next to that proverb. It doesn't seem to make sense. And that's how life is. How often do you get to handle all of your questions about relationships at one time? And just relationships. How often do you get to handle just questions of money, just questions of work? How often does your life come in neat blocks and categories? Or is it more often a jumbled mess, bouncing from issue to issue and option and question? There are no discrete categories, but money, family, friends, work, and children are all jumbled together in Proverbs and in our lives. And it is the truly wise person that can navigate all of these circumstances and situations well. It is wisdom that we need in order to move quickly and well from all of these different issues and to handle them rightly. So that's the book of Proverbs. And if we're looking at the portrait of wisdom, we have to turn it just a little bit to see what the book of Ecclesiastes has to tell us. It it, it pivots... And what happens in Ecclesiastes is removing God from the picture. What is life like when God is no longer at the center of our existence? What is life like when we live it under the sun? When this horizon is as far as you get? What are you left with? And Ecclesiastes answers that for us. It is a fruitless and empty pursuit of pleasure and gain which ultimately leads to loss and pain. So if we're looking at the portrait of wisdom, and we have, we have Proverbs, which gives us the ordinary life, we, we turn it a little bit and we get Ecclesiastes, where God is removed from the picture, we come to the book of Job. And Job turns the portrait again. And bad things happen to good people. A wise man who is pursuing righteousness, who is loving and fearing the Lord, loses it all. And in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our loss, in the midst of our brokenness and our heartache, so often we too cry out, where is God? Does he know does he even care? And the answer that, that Job gives us is that the Lord is at work. The Lord does have a plan. The Lord has not lost control of either our circumstances or the universe as a whole. The where are we going question is not answered. In Job, The driver simply tells us, Trust me. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, the Song of Songs shifts the story again. And it is about wisdom and love in marriage. In this most intimate of human relationships, how can we pursue our desires and fulfill them in a way that honors the God we serve? And lastly, we come to the book of James. And James takes the portrait of wisdom and turns it one more time. Now that Jesus has come, in light of the cross and the resurrection, in light of his humility and service to his Father, how does Christ change our destination? How does he change our route? How does Jesus' work Change the goal in the path we take. And what we discover is that the way down is actually the way up. That the way of humility is the way ultimately to glory. That the cross must come before the crown. but I find that as I talk with people that the book of Proverbs does not really hold us in our attention very well. We we don't find the book of Proverbs terribly helpful. In fact, we find it so unhelpful that I suspect if, if Solomon was here, we would actually not consider him to be very wise. Imagine for a moment if Solomon was your investment banker, and you sat down with him and you laid out all of your concerns you're you're wrestling through with how much money should be in savings and how much should you invest in the stock market and and you, you lay out your hopes for retirement you put this all in front of Solomon and he gives you a proverb for an answer a penny saved is a penny earned and he said good day we would not find that terribly helpful. We wouldn't find that to be something that we were able to really wrap our minds around. We would probably find a different investment banker. In fact, we find the book of Proverbs so unhelpful that there is a multi-million dollar Christian living and self-help industry. In other words, we are so ill-equipped to learn wisdom... That that's the number one thing that everybody is trying to answer. If you go to Barnes & Noble, the largest section of Christian books they have are on Christian living and self-help. If you go to um, a Christian bookstore, like Lifeway, you're going to find the same thing. If I was to go to your house and see your bookshelf, most of your books would be about how am I supposed to live the Christian life? And one of the reasons is we don't, frankly, find the book of Proverbs to be that compelling. You see, we're in a culture that doesn't actually admire proverbial wisdom. We, we don't admire the sort of wisdom that is offered here in the book. Uh, and what we have is, well, proverbs are, are sort of like miniature parables. If you find Jesus' parables in the Gospels puzzling, here's a whole book of them. They're, they're, they're pithy sayings. They're, they're quotable quotes. They're things that make you think. And ultimately, a proverb leads to the truth by the way of suggestion rather than demand. Proverbs lead to the truth by way of suggestion rather than demand. And this requires that we, we place ourselves in a very different posture than we normally do when we're trying to understand this world that we live in. But let's turn to the text, Proverbs chapter 1, and we begin here with an encouragement and a warning. Look at verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Well, Solomon, he's very famous, he's particularly famous for one major reason. When he came to the throne, the Lord appeared to him in a vision and said, Ask whatever you want, and it will be granted to you. And Solomon's request was that he would be wise. He wanted wisdom because he knew the task of governing his people was too great for him, and he needed help. And so he asked the Lord for wisdom, and God granted that wisdom to him. And this is an encouragement. That if we lack wisdom, as James tells us, then we can go to the Lord and ask him for this, and he promises that he will give it to us. If you do not have wisdom and you desire it, God will give you this if you will ask for it. And so in Solomon's early reign, his prayer for wisdom being answered, we find in in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11, we find his story. And in this story, we find his wisdom demonstrated in amazing building projects. He constructed the temple. We find it in solving naughty uh, uh, um, interpersonal relationship issues where the, the two ladies come with one surviving child. And how do you handle this? And we find him answering the questions of visiting foreign monarchs. Surprising and astounding with the wisdom that God Has given him. But later in his reign, as as his life carried on, what happened was that his wealth, his military strength, his comfort, and his pleasure turned his heart away from the Lord. And this, brothers and sisters, is the warning. Solomon's life tells us this you can begin well and end very terribly. Just because you have pursued wisdom as a younger person does not guarantee that you will pursue wisdom as an older person. Just because you have made wise choices in the past does not guarantee that you will continue to make wise choices in the future. What ultimately cost Solomon his wisdom was his willful disobedience. He chose to reject what God had commanded in order to chase his own desires. And even though he began as a wise young man, he ended an old fool. And this is both an encouragement and a challenge to us. Let us both begin well. If we lack wisdom, call out to God. He promises to answer. But let us also be careful that we do not presume that what was begun well necessarily ends well. So if verse 1 is about an encouragement and a warning, verse 2, we discover that the book of Proverbs is a manual on discipleship. To know wisdom and instruction... To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. The first and primary audience of the book of Proverbs is the simple youth. Which then raises the question, what are the simple? Who are the simple? Well, the simple are actually young men and women... Who are living at home, who are growing in responsibility, but whose major life choices are being made for them. The simpler those who live at home, who are growing in this, who are torn between wisdom and foolishness, but the major life choices, the ones where you can really mess up your life, those are largely being made by other people. The simple are those who are neither wise nor fools. They are pursued and pulled in both directions. And they need to see the consequences of their choices and their actions. So the key to gaining wisdom, the key to truly understanding the world, the key is a humble spirit. A humble spirit and a contrite heart the Lord does not despise. We actually see that, that in order to gain wisdom, you have to receive it. It has to be given to you. And the only proper posture for this is one of reception, of of being humble enough to receive the instruction. Without humility, the student cannot and will not learn. This is something the student has to commit to. If you have ever tried to teach children who refuse to learn It is a very frustrating experience. I had the opportunity to write a letter of apology to my high school English teacher after I got to college, and I realized what it was she was trying to get me to do. I had to track her down and send her an email, and I said, I am so sorry, Mrs. England. I did not understand what you were trying to do, and I made your life difficult as you sought to help me in this. A student who refuses to learn, who is not in a posture of humility, cannot learn wisdom. There is a pridefulness, a know-it-all mentality, that creates an impenetrable mindset, Something my dad used to say is, my mind's all made up. Don't confuse me with facts. And isn't this how we often live our lives? Not just as teenagers. How often are we willing to be corrected and challenged? How often are we willing to have others tell us that we're wrong? Think to the last time somebody told you you were wrong, and how did you react to it? And if you reacted with anger then you probably aren't very humble. How dare they tell me? Or, what gives them the right? And there you go. So if the, if the goal of the book is a discipleship manu- manual for teenagers, but you wait until your young person is a teenager to begin this process, you're not going to get very far. Because one thing happens when, when kids hit their teenage years, something happens where they seem to turn off the instructional reception part from mom and dad. If, if you have not actively sought to discipline and disciple your children from when they were young, it is exceptionally hard to begin the process when they're teenagers. The longer you wait to get started, the more difficult it is to actually reach them. But is all hope lost? No, by no means. We serve a God of redemption and restoration. And so with the prayers of the parents, of the grandparents, sometimes even the hardest hearts can be softened by the work of the Spirit. But not only is this a manual on discipleship, it's also a manual on, dis- on instruction. Look at verses 5 and 6. Let the wise hear an increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. You know this from practice and habit, that a lack of intentionality, a lack of a purpose and a plan, a lack of intentionality leads It never happening. If you do not have a plan to put discipleship into effect, it will not happen. Not the wisdom that we find from the Bible. Your children are being discipled. Your teenagers are being discipled. We are all being discipled on a daily basis. That is, we are becoming like what we listen to, what we watch, what we talk about, what we think about when nobody else is around. What we discover here in in verses 5 and 6 is that a teacher cannot give what he or she does not have. Brothers and sisters, you cannot give wisdom to others if you are not pursuing wisdom yourself. If you are not actively desiring to follow careful, faithful obedience of the Lord God, if that is not your intention, then you have nothing in terms of biblical wisdom to offer your children, your grandchildren. Or if you're teaching Sunday school, or working with the youth, or on Wednesday nights, you have nothing to offer. An example of this would be, would be finances. Money. Your children are watching how you spend your money. They know what your priorities are. They know when and how you spend money. They know what it is that you are willing to save for and what you have to have right now. They're watching and learning from the patterns of your life. So the question is, are you actively pursuing wisdom in how you handle your finances, and then are you actively teaching your children how to use those finances well? They're learning something from you. The question becomes, what is it? We also discover here that the posture of the teacher, just like the student, is a posture of humility. That the posture of the teacher, as well as the student, is one of humility. That this is not something where, if the teacher is arrogant and prideful and self-centered, if that's what the teacher is, then guess what sort of student he or she will create. If we want humble students who listen carefully to us, then we must be those who are humble ourselves and are listening carefully to God's Word. Frequently, I will have what I call a conversation with my children. I do all the talking. They do all the listening. That's not really what you would call a conversation, but I like to call it that because it helps me sleep better at night. But am I listening to God's word? Am I growing in holiness? Am I pursuing the way of wisdom myself in order to then lead my children by the hand? Teachers create students like themselves. You can discover what kind of teacher you have by what sort of attitude you demonstrate if you're humble, and, or if you're arrogant, if you're uh, self-sacrificing, or you're self-centered, or if you are um, arrogant and, and controlling, then you can discover who your teacher is. Have you followed Christ? Do you know him who is meek and lowly of heart, who stoops down to wash other people's feet, Is that the teacher you are learning from, or not? We come now to verse 7, which is really the heart of the matter. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The expression, the fear of the Lord, is probably the toughest part of this initial seven verses. What exactly does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, the thing that should jump out at us to begin with is the covenantal name of God. You see that it's written all in caps, L-O-R-D. This is the covenantal name of God. This is the name that God himself declares to Moses in the burning bush. I am that I am. Then later, as Moses is had and hid in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by and pronounces his name, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, long-suffering, patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. This is the God we serve. Wisdom begins here. It begins with fearing the Lord. Fearing Yahweh, fearing Jehovah. And it requires a proper knowledge of and relationship to the God of the Bible. Charles Bridges puts it like this. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. So fearing the Lord, fearing Yahweh, has two components. There is a, we might call a head component and a heart component. There's a a mental element and an emotional element. There is objective content that we need to know. And this is why the rest of the scriptures are essential for Christian discipleship. You must know the Bible in order to know the God that is discovered in the Bible. You must be teaching your children. You must be learning yourself. Who is this God who calls his people to himself? Who rescues ruined sinners? Who pours out his love on the undeserving? You have to know this God, and he is found in the pages of Scripture. There is an objective content. There is information you need to know. But it is also emotional. It's not just a head knowledge. It is also a heart knowledge. It is not just information. It's a commitment of your life. Fearing Yahweh has an emotional element, a subjective content. Brothers and sisters, without a changed heart, without what the scriptures call a heart of flesh, you cannot properly fear the Lord. You cannot love and serve him the way the Bible requires. This fear, this wholehearted reverence and obedience to the Lord God, this fear is the beginning of knowledge. When you look out at creation and you see this wonderful world that God has made, it is in knowing who he is and who you are that you can properly interpret the facts. The fear of the Lord is the the glasses, the lenses that we put on to properly interpret the data. Without the fear of the Lord, you cannot really understand this world that he has made. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool says in his heart there is no God. He has determined that he will live his life for himself, all about himself, and he does not believe there will ever be an accounting or a holding responsible. He does not have to obey anybody but his own desires, and that fool will despise wisdom and instruction. Will say to the God of the Bible, I will not listen to you. And that leads us back to the question Where are you going? What is your destination? What path are we on? Where are we heading? And unlike my children in car trips, we need to sort this issue out. We need to commit ourselves to the way of wisdom and then carefully, daily, even hourly meditate on God's law so that we might know him, love him, and serve him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for strength and courage here. We ask for wisdom and insight. If we are simple and have not yet committed ourselves to the way of wisdom or the way of fools, would you help us see where these two roads lead? If we are those who have committed ourselves to the way of wisdom, we ask, O Lord, that you would help us to continue in that path. Let us not step off for our own disobedience and our own pleasure. Let us not end poorly, we who have begun well. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who have chosen the way of foolishness, who have chosen to say in their hearts that there is no God, there is no one who will hold us accountable, would you open their eyes, give them hearts to receive the wonderful joy that is found in the work of your Son. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.